When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And I'm here with Metallica, the hot new heavy metal band from L.A. And let's have them start with their name and what they do in the band. And let's start with you. James Hetfield, rhythm guitar and vocals. Lars Ulrich, drums and bongs. Dave Mustaine, lead guitar. Cliff Burton, bass guitar. Okay, how long has the band been together as Metallica? Well, since we started. Which was what? October 81? Yeah. The first Metallica. The first Metallica. Okay. Who are your favorite artists or your main influences? Let's start with you. Oh, I don't know. There's all kinds of shit. I can't even start to think about it. Angel uh, Witch. Angel Witch. Fate. Venom. Motorhead. Rush. Venom. Diamond Head. Black Sabbath. Diamond Head. ZZ Top. What? Definitely. Do all your audiences react the same in the different places you play? Up in San Francisco, they're a lot better. A lot better. They're sucks. in L.A. Yeah. L.A. sucks. One, two, three. L.A. sucks! What would you say to a band that's just starting out on the rock scene today? Do it. Do it. <laughs> Are you planning to do any recording soon? May 1st. May 1st, Rochester, New York. Is there any last words you want to say to everybody out there? Metal up your ass! <laughs> okay, thank you. This is Donna Davis, and this is Metallica. This is the Growing Up Rock Podcast with your hosts, Stephen Michael and Sonny Hollywood Pooney. Now, crank it up. <laughs> All right, Hollywood, it's the end of the month, which means it's another album series episode. So what are we doing this month? Which album are we celebrating 40 years of rock and roll with? Well, obviously, by the title, we're looking at the debut album from Metallica, Kill Em All. Yes! 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 Sonny, this should be an interesting one for you because this isn't usually your bang zone of rock and roll. Yeah, now my bang zone of rock and roll and where I grew up, worlds are colliding, right? And as you all know, wherever you grew up, man, when you go to high school and some band's hot, if you ain't into it, you might get beat up. So that's just kind of how it is. 
Well, with all other album series episodes that we do, obviously we have to bring along a guest to help us get through all these tracks, go track by track through this record and share our thoughts and any insights that we may bring to the party. And usually we match the guest, uh, which is usually like another friend or podcaster or whatever it is with the album. And you kind of like with Steve Wright doing the first album, Crocus's Headhunter. If you knew his podcast or you knew Steve at all from the many episodes that he's been on, you knew he's a Crocus fan. So that was kind of an obvious choice with Alex Alt doing the Rod Stewart. Alex has a wide variety of taste. Uh, so the Rod Stewart wasn't a stretch for him. The person that we have on today obviously also has a very wide net in his particular taste, but I was a little bit surprised to see his name pop up on this album because for those of you that don't know, Sonny is the one that kind of goes and puts the people with the album. He sends out the text, he lines people up, and then all I do is just kind of coordinate when we're ready to record it for month to month. This month, we are bringing on a return guest, as many of these guests are. David Hudson from the State of America podcast, the Great Black Crows podcast. Huddy, welcome back to the Grown Up Rock podcast. How are you? Uh, you guys are scraping the bottom of the barrel, aren't you? <laughs> I don't know about that. Trying to get a guest. <laughs> we have Huddy on every year. I think you've done every album series that we've done. Did you do the Van Halen, the first one? No, I just no. did Def Leppard. Euphoria. The, the Def Leppard one. Yeah. And then this year you're doing the 40th anniversary album series uh, and you landed on Metallica's Kill Em All. So it'll be interesting to get your take on this. I would not plot you as a Metallica fan, but are you oh, a Metallica I've seen them, fan? I've, oh, yeah. I, I've, I've seen them several times. Yeah. Well, you can yeah, see one them of the a thousand few. times. That doesn't mean you like them. Why would you keep <laughs> go seeing them if you don't like them? Free tickets? I Especially, don't know. Hey, have you, have you seen how much the tickets cost? <laughs> I saw them the first time at Lollapalooza when they headlined it, and I saw them about three years ago. I mean, as many people know that listen to this podcast, I've been a fan since the first album, and I haven't even seen them live yet. So what does that say about my fandom? Because that means you're cheap. That's what that means. Well, that one thing that people think is pretty honey. It's old cold cash and they call it money. Yep. Money, money, all that dream back. Money, money, drink it all. I was going to say that. I always hear Sonny talk about how cheap you are. Oh, yeah. Frugal. Well, well Son Sonny gets cheap and, and uh, frugal confused. And brings his own, brings his own water to rock and pod. There you go. Nothing wrong with that. Come on now. I'll tell you what. I'm not paying $250 for a nosebleed seat in a stadium. Uh, I'm not doing it or whatever it is. I'm not paying 100 bucks for a nosebleed uh, seat in the stadium. So, So you'll never see Metallica. Even if they do a club, they're going to sell out in 23 seconds and you ain't going to get a ticket. So you ain't seeing Metallica. Yeah. My only hope for ever seeing Metallica is that they end up playing arenas again at some point and they come to an arena that I have connections at, or I find out somebody I know from my past is working for them and they line me up with tickets or last but not least, 
Sonny hits the big jackpot as the ace gambler that he is and buys me tickets. So one of, <laughs> one of those ways might possibly happen in my lifetime. I don't know. God bless Sonny. Wow. Wow. So <laughs> Stephen had mentioned, I'm the one that usually reaches out and says, hey, do you want to do XYZ album? So here's the text that I sent Huddy. It said, Huddy, for 2023, Grown Up Rock has decided to do a 40th anniversary series for albums for review versus picking a specific band. We're wondering if you're interested in doing one of the reviews with us. The choices I gave Huddy, one I can't mention because we haven't done the album yet. The others were Living in Oz by Rick Springfield, Holy Diver by Dio, Body Wishes by Rod Stewart, Keep It Up by Liverboy, and Kill Em All by Metallica. I wasn't even going to put Metallica on the list because I figured it would be a no, but I added it on there because nobody had taken it yet. It wasn't two minutes. All the text said was kill them all. I'm like, all righty then. And that was it. So how do you tell us about like your introduction into Metallica? Where does Metallica come into your life? So I was born in 76. So when this album came out, obviously I wasn't into heavy metal. Mm -hmm. Got into music like though, like 83, 84, like Sonny can appreciate this. Uh, My parents bought me Purple Rain, Born in the USA and the Flashdance soundtrack. Uh, I don't know how that got thrown in there. But anyway, uh, when I heard Bon Jovi, Slippery When Wet, when I was probably about nine, it's when I really got into like, you know, that kind of music. And you'd read the hit paraders and cream and everything. You'd see this band Metallica. And I went, man, they look evil. Like they're wearing bullets, you know, as belts and everything. And then one night about two o'clock in the morning, I was watching, uh, was it on TBS, Night Tracks or something like that? It was all not videos on WTBS. And they said, we're going to play the first ever video from Metallica. And it was one. And it terrified me. And uh, I just remember thinking, oh, these guys sound like this isn't poison or, you know, whatever else I was listening to at the time didn't really do much for me. And my cousin just kept telling me, she's like, they're the best band on earth. And I heard Inner Sandman and I was like, this is awesome. And uh, bought the Black Album, loved it, and then went and bought Injustice for All and um, enjoyed it. And it wasn't honestly until about 10 or 15 years ago that I really went into the back catalog and uh, like Master of Puppets, I think, is an absolute masterpiece. The song Master of Puppets is one of my favorite songs of all time. I've grown to appreciate Load, but as far as like getting into them, it was the Black Album. And like I was telling you, I saw them five years later at Lollapalooza when Load came out. And uh, I'd say they're a top 15, top 20 band for me. Wow. Yeah. So like so many others, I mean, the Black Album exposed the band to so much of a wider audience. And that's what really catapulted them. I mean, I've shared my story many, many times on this podcast. If you're new to the podcast or you're listening for the first time, I'll give you the really uh, quick Cliff Notes version, which is I saw the album Kill Em All on the end cap, along with Ravens All for One on the end cap. Both records on Megaforce, both records were black and red in their appearance. And I had previously heard the song Hit the Lights on a metal compilation tape, the Meta Massacre 1, put out by Brian Slagle of Metal Blade Records. And that's what sold me on the band from the get-go. And it was like, unlike nothing I'd heard in the past, and I loved it. So I was a Metallica fan from there on and kind of followed their career. But to this day, have yet to see the band live for whatever reason, scheduling, cost of ticket, nosebleed seats, I don't know you can insert whatever the situation is. So that's my story. Sonny, you grew up in the Bay Area where all this stuff has taken place. 
where does Metallica come into your life? Yeah. So this album comes out when I'm 14. So I'm a sophomore earlier in the year. This came out in the summer and then I was going to be a junior and turn 15 later that year. I remember seeing metal up your ass t-shirts and I'm like, what is that? And then slowly you would see ride the lightning t-shirts. I didn't quite get it, but they were showing up kind of everywhere in high school. Right. And you know, all the kids are, they're trying to just like everybody, they're trying to get along and they're trying to fit in. And, and I started noticing, I'm like, okay, I'm hearing this music at the football field with the stoners. And then I'm hearing this music with the hacky sack kids on the quad. Like how'd they get both those guys? Like they don't usually listen to the same stuff. So somebody gave me, one of my friends probably gave me Ride the Lightning and gave me Kill em All. And I'll tell you, I didn't love it. I listened to it and I'm like, I don't get it. I was in, I was into Rat and Motley Crue and Kiss and all these other bands. And I'm like, this doesn't sound like the stuff that I'm listening to on MTV. And I had never seen them on MTV. So I don't know who this band is, but they got cool shirts, but I don't get the music. I don't, I don't understand. It's too fast. I didn't get it until Master of Puppets came out and I saw them live in 86. So they opened for Ozzy and that was, that's the Jakey e. Lee, Phil Suzanne, Randy Castillo, Ozzy at that time, ultimate sin tour. And, uh, I remember seeing them live going, oh, I get it. It's the energy. And that place, I just got goosebumps saying it out loud. That place was absolutely jumping. So then I gave ride the lightning and kill them all a chance again. I'm like, okay, I get it. I'm into the master of puppets because they've kind of refined their sound by now. And I'm into this. This is the raw piece of that. And we'll get to it when we get to the songs. But to me, this album, there's a couple of songs where it's like, wow. And then there's a couple of songs where I'm like, wow, these guys are beginners? Like, you get kind of both ends of it. So you can see, just like we've talked about, you know, Bon Jovi's first album and some of these first albums, that you can see hints of, oh, my God, that is so awesome. And then you see hints of, okay, this is why they're teenagers in a garage. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of information on this record. And if you really start digging into it, there's, I mean, it's essentially a hodgepodge potpourri pot of bits and pieces and came from various different other first bands and things like that. And uh, it is that raw uh, first attempt at what was essentially, you know, the beginning stages of a garage band that became what it is you know today and and you can kind of see the progression from album to album as you go through it whether you like it or you don't like it but we'll get there we'll share all the parts uh, a lot of the information we're going to share comes from interviews comes from wikipedia comes from uh magazine articles there's all kinds of stuff some of the information may be incorrect for those metallica fans that are hardcore but Everything comes from uh, either a article or an interview or something like that. So, you know, don't shoot the messenger, basically, is what I'm going to tell you. So let's get into the basic facts for Metallica's Kill 'Em All. Released July 25th of 1983. I was a junior in high school at that point. Uh, recorded in May of 1983. So, man, it's so funny because back then, the release period was so quick, you know, for an album to be recorded in May and released in, in July. That's, that's nuts. The record was recorded in Rochester, New York. The length of the record is 51 minutes, which is, that's pretty lengthy for a record back then. 
The label is Megaforce, uh, run, of course, by Johnny and Marsha Z. Producer was Paul Curcio, I guess is how that's pronounced. I'm not familiar with this individual at all. The peak billboard position of this record in 1988 was 120 on the Billboard 200. So the record was released in 83. It hit 120 somewhere around 1988. Overall, the record has sold 4.5 million copies in the U.S. In 2021, the album peaked at 18 on the top rock albums. I'm guessing maybe this was driven by Stranger Things or a movie or something to make Kill 'Em All peak again at number 18. Did you say it was 2021? 2021, yeah. That's when they did that massive Black Album reissue. And so I wonder if that drove some sales. It could have. When was that? When was the big uh, flare up with Metallica on Stranger Things? Wasn't that around 2021? Last year. That was last year. 2022. Okay. Yeah. And it could be, you know, well, in 88, it's getting traction because of the one video, right? And Justice for All is taken off. So then it pulls all the old records up with it. We've seen that Mm -hmm. with other artists. It could be because didn't Hardwired? come out around that time too hardwired was 16 i think oh is it that old i didn't realize it was that old i thought they released something recent well they released 72 seasons no 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 i'm talking 2020 2021 maybe not no hardwire he uh david's right hardwire is definitely uh several years old now at this point but anyway so that's the deal the band is the classic lineup that everybody pretty much understands for this record james hetfield on vocals and rhythm guitar kurt hammett lead guitar cliff burton on bass and lars ulrich on drums Uh, let's talk a little bit about the album artwork the cover and the inserts so originally and Sonny alluded to it earlier originally the album was intended to be titled metal up your ass with the cover art featuring a hand clutching a dagger emerging from a toilet bowl Classy. (laughs) And that's a classic T-shirt. I remember uh, friends of mine wearing that T-shirt in high school uh, as well. I always thought it was kind of a cool T-shirt. But Metal Up Your Ass, it kind of became sort of their war cry for a long time. It was a lot like Up the Irons for Iron Maiden. Do you guys remember that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the final cover art featured a shadow of a hand letting go of a bloodied hammer. Cliff Burton was credited with coming up with the name Kill 'em All, referring to record distributors saying those record company fuckers kill 'em all. That sounds really harsh. I don't understand why he would say something like that. Anybody have insight on that? <laughs> dude, he was a harsh dude, right? So Hammond said in an interview, the reason the hammer thing came up is Cliff used to carry around a hammer with him everywhere he went. He always had a hammer in his luggage and would take it out every once in a while to start destroying shit when he felt like it. The dude was a little off. Sounds a little bit like that, yeah. Uh, Lars thought Kill em All was a good name, uh, and Johnny Z agreed. Burton suggested to uh, Gary Hurd, also responsible for Metallica, photograph on the back cover of this record to feature a bloodied hammer on the album art. So, I mean, look. What's your thoughts about the album cover? It has the iconic logo on it at this point. I think it's kind of plain, but it's black and red. It stuck out on an on an end cap at the record store, obviously, because I bought it. Sonny, 
what do you uh, think about this album cover? Um, I like the logo. I, I think the way Kill 'Em All's written on the on the album isn't very, I guess, thrash metal or hard metal or whatever the hell they're trying to be. It feels a little DIY, right? It's, it doesn't really feel like some professional did this. Like, kind of feels like they put it together themselves. Right. And let's keep in in mind that Johnny Z at this point, he went in, almost went bankrupt, bankrolling the album at 15 grand to record this record. So it's not like Megaforce is some major, huge label that has tons of money. It is very much do it yourself, I think, at this point. Right. Yeah. And then this picture on the back. Right. Because they look so young. The reason they look young is Hetfield's 19. Lars is 19. Hammett is 20 and Burton is 21. That's why they look young. They are young. So now hearing that Hammett is 20 and you hear the shit that's on this album, it's like, good Lord, dude, he was being wasted in Exodus. That's for damn sure. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, he's a student of Joe Satriani. So it's well publicized that he took lessons early on from Joe Satriani. He gets a lot of shit as a guitar player, which I never quite understood. I get that he's not mentioned in the same breath as uh, Lynch and, and Van Halen and guys like that, but I don't quite understand the hate for Kirk. David, what's your thoughts on on the album cover? How do you uh, uh, feel about this record cover? Well, I think you literally had a genre being invented in, in front of your eyes mm-hmm. when they came out. And they all, if you go back and look at like from like 83, 87, 88, they all took, seemed like they took pride in their album covers being violent looking or tough looking you know you've got the debut megadeth album they got the slayer album all of those especially those those megadeth albums always tried to look really tough and, and kind of menacing and these guys are putting this album out it's something that most americans have never heard a type of music like this you know because uh, diamond head wasn't real big in america and that's where metallica got a lot of their inspiration from and so i think it was just an effort to put out something a, like you said, to grab your attention in the record store, but B, to have this like tough look, which is kind of funny now because they're anything but tough at this point. But I try to put myself back in 1983, if I would have been like 14 or 15, like you guys, what would have drawn me to them and that album cover for sure. I'm like, oh, this has got to be some evil stuff, you know, and that's what you're looking for when you're that age. Well, their image, the album cover, their actual image, the photographs, it's all very, very reminiscent of the new wave of British heavy metal, which everybody knows they were highly influenced from that genre of music. And if you go back and you look at the angel witches and the Saxons and the, you know, insert new wave of British heavy metal band here, you mean shitty band here. Go ahead. That's your opinion. Good Lord. Those bands suck. The fuck is Sonny Pony? I liked a lot of it. I liked a lot of it. These guys were obviously influenced by that. You know, uh, I think the fact that Lars probably bought a lot of that over with him from Denmark, uh, having come from there. And James, I think, was already into that growing up there in California. So it's just... That was the look. That was what they looked like. They were young. They were 20, you know, as you as you pointed out. So the music is a totally different discussion than the image and the album cover. The music, like you said, David, we're seeing a different animal altogether here in the U.S. with their music, uh, which we'll get into, right? 
Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Let's start with the first track, Hit the Lights. So let's start with the story here. So it's been publicized. Mustaine had some issues. So Metallica lets them go before they start recording. Kirk had a week to learn the songs before they started doing live gigs. Now, remember, he's 20. So when it came to actually recording in the studio, Johnny Z goes, tells Kirk, hey, you know, you have to play actually Mustaine's solos. Like, you can't do your own thing. The solos that Mustaine was doing as the solos are going to be on here. And Kirk's like, I don't want to do that. So they basically compromise on Kirk would open every solo with the first four bars of the Dave solo and then go to wherever he felt like going because Kirk was like, look, I don't want to do this, but I don't really want to rock the boat either. Like I just got here. Right. And 
they, you know, think about it. He, he has a week to learn it and then they play it live for two, three weeks. He's already kind of figured out some mojo of how he's going to do it. And now he's got to default back to what the hell's going on. This first song, just talking about the guitar solo alone, you can tell Kirk is absolutely going off. And to know that he's 20 years old doing this at this point is amazing. David, what'd you think about Hit the Lights? It's one of my favorite Metallica songs. It was very kind of later on in, in me listening to Metallica before I ever listened to Kill Em All. Like I said, I started out with a Black album and uh, really just kind of listened to that and just Injustice for All for a really long time. The thing I, I really like about this song is I'm going to be a hypocrite later on in the in the in the podcast, and I'll explain to you why. Normally, I don't like music that like talks about. It's kind of like rap. I don't like music that talks about how hard we rock or what we're going to do when you get to the show and stuff like that. To me, it's just, it's cheesy and stupid, but you're like cheesy and stupid, David Hudson. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's not the first time I've heard that. Um, anyway, it's interesting though, on the original recording of this, it's not Mustaine or Kurt playing the solo. It's a guy by the name of Lloyd Grant. And he got on stage and played with them on the 30th anniversary but the song's just basically you know about they're about to drop the hammer on you in concert and you know the real show is about to start but i love the the opening riff uh and the song does mention no life to leather which was the uh, the demo record or whatever that they sent out isn't that right yeah it's, it, it is part yeah. of that yes and i like that in between the first verse in the second course we get a really quick blistering solo that i think is kind of a foreshadow of what to come i don't think you're going to hear hetfield sing too much in this tone anymore the rest of his career I, I just love his approach to it it's very very aggressive and i think one of the my favorite things about it is how when it gets to the course the tempo changes and it changes and i'm not a musician so everybody's going to laugh at me but it seems like everything moves to like a backbeat for a second you know the hit the lights part the tempo changes so much but man like sunny said the solo on this is insane and i can't imagine if you're 14 or 15 back in 82 83 you buy this album just like steven said oh i see it on the shelf i'm gonna i'm gonna get it and you hear this solo this first solo on the first song that you hear from this band i can't imagine what that was like because like sunny said just an absolutely killer solo by kirk hammett yeah steven i remember when i first heard the song not loving it and today i would say i like it more but I remember why I didn't love it, and it's easy not to love it. It's a breakneck speed. It's basically punk. It turned me off immediately because I was listening to Crew, 
come on, we went from crew to punk and crew had a little punk in them, but not at this speed. Right. So I remember going, God, it's just too fast, but the tempo changes, the guitar solo and what head feels doing feels like what Metallica is about to come. The punk thing, Metallica left that pretty quick and moved it into something else. Steven, did you think this was punk like the first time you heard it? Yeah, so I think that punk is a lot like metal and that there are a lot of different types of punk. Just like with metal, there's there's black metal, there's hard rock, there's melodic metal, there's blah, blah, blah. There's tons of things. When you say punk, you talk about Motley Crue having a little bit of punk. They had that glam side of punk because there was a sort of glam type punk. The punk that we're talking about here is a lot like the maiden punk in terms of that just raw, quick pace stuff. And yeah, there's definitely streaks of that. But what separates this record very quickly, uh, and we'll talk about just this song in particular, is things like the time change and them pulling back. So yeah, it's breakneck speed up front. They pull it back. And one of the things that's apparent to me and one of the things that drew me in, because this is the first Metallica song that I heard. This is one of the older Metallica songs that exists. This song goes back to James Hetfield and Ron McCovey's band Leather Charm. So it's it's pre it predates Metallica. And it just it has that. I love the way that James delivers his vocal lines there's something different that draws me in the way james did back then the way james does today james hetfield has a very distinct voice in metallica music and it's not just i'm not just talking about his tone or his singing i'm talking about the way he delivers things even that the yeah right (laughs) i mean that's that's so uh, James Hetfield, and it drew me in immediately, and I love it. This is one of two originals played at the very first Metallica show ever. And so when I heard this on the metal compilation tape, as I pointed out, I was immediately a fan. I'd never heard anything like it. It was heavy. It was punky, but there was something different about it, and I could understand what the guy was singing, which I really appreciated. All right, the second track, we got the Four Horsemen. So here's what Lars said about the Four Horsemen. Dave brought in some things he had from his old band, Panic, things he'd been jamming, big picture ideas, stuff like that. The song Four Horsemen was in its earliest versions called Mechanics, and it was literally a song about sex. There were lyrics about talking about a hose, stick it in a tank. It was basically like a gas station stop disguised as some sexual intercourse type thing. Lars goes, it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but we knew that was the sort of thing we wanted to move away from. So they saw it happening in hard rock, and they're like, we don't want to do that. It's a little light, it's a little obvious, and that is not who we want to be. So the reason I tell you that story is because they were on purpose trying to be different, and I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. David, for this song, to me, the lyrics, the feel, the gallop, they're trying to become America's Maiden here. This, This feels like America's Maiden to me. How about you? Do you have like some type of camera and you're reading my notes? Because I'm not going to have much else to say. Uh, I do have here that Mustaine asked them not to use any of his songs when they recorded this album. 
but I bet his pocketbook is extremely happy that they did. <laughs> it tells the story of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And one of the things I think that's different about Metallica than other bands, when they use biblical imagery, like on Creeping Death, it's in a serious manner and it's not in some type of silly, cheeky way that a lot of metal bands use it. And it's they don't take advantage of it. And they're not like sacrilegious about it either. It, it's just they're, they're telling the story. I love how the song starts off with the chugging riff in the right speaker and it goes for a couple of bars and then it comes in on the left speaker and then the tempo speeds up right before James starts singing. And, and one thing that's interesting is James is singing with a lot of melody on this song. More so than, than you'll hear, you know, on other thrash metal songs, which I think is something that sets them apart a little bit. But like you said, you have this chugging, repeating riff that shows up in the song and it's got a galloping quality, much like Iron Maiden. It's the first time we, to me, we really hear Cliff Burton stand out. The only complaint I have on this is, and Sonny may agree with me on this, I think the song's about two minutes too long. I don't mind long songs. I'm not a big fan of long metal songs because generally it just winds up being the same riff being repeated over and over again. But I think they could have trimmed a little bit off of this. But I mean, obviously, this is one of their their songs that that people go nuts over. It's probably, you know, this and Seek and Destroy are the two that even casual fans know of off this album. Yeah, so the long song thing for me, I've said it before about one band. I've never said it about this band. There's a couple of bands that get a pass for me on all long songs because of all the tempo changes. One is Maiden, another one's Metallica. So this one's long, but it doesn't feel long because of all the different things that are happening, right? Like there's like these long jams, there's like the varying guitar solos, there's the tempo changes. It's okay for me. Steven, this song represents what Metallica is about to become later on. You've heard this song in variations in other songs and upcoming albums after this, but that whole sweet home Alabama thing about three and a half minutes in is a little weird. Yeah, so Dave Mustang talks about that. And Dave ended up taking this song and releasing it on Megadeth's record, right? As Mechanics. Uh, and and yeah, he sped he it was, up, right? If I remember correctly. I don't remember. It's been so long since I've actually heard the uh, Megadeth version of it. I didn't do enough research to listen to it before this recording. But I remember that it was very similar when 
I first learned that it was basically that song. To me, Sonny said this is where you can really see what Metallica is going to become. Yeah, for sure. Because this is where like the band shows that they can actually write in terms of when you get to like the pre-course and the time change, there's some good writing, promising writing things that happen in the four horsemen. To me, this is very new wave of British heavy metal sound. I mean, and, and that's okay with me. I like it. It's just, again, I can't say it enough. I like James's voice and the way that he delivers. And so, uh, yeah, this is one of the uh, huge classics in terms of early Metallica. So then we get to the third song, Motor Breath. And David, I get it. It's not Warrant. It's not Winger. You're not going to get melodic choruses. But goddamn, this song is brutal. I saw somewhere the song feels like Motorhead. You're absolutely right. Complete shit. Exactly. David, your thoughts? Well, Sonny, we're, we're, we're three for three so far on this, keeping score over here. First of all, the song is credited to Hetfield only, and I think that's one of the few times in their catalog that that's the case. I'm with Sonny. There's nothing special about this. Uh, one of the things I think that's interesting is, for the most part, it has pretty straightforward drumming by Lars, which is not something that you that you hear very much. Uh, if you talk to other drummers, they tell you when he does this, he can't keep time, but I can't tell the difference. If, you know, the song, you know, it's kind of about living your life as you wish, seeing how others, you know, don't do that and, and trying not to conform. But um, I think the solos between the chorus and the verses are lazy. To me, the chorus just sounds off a little bit rhythmically. And uh, I, don't, I just have here, it's a fairly lazy song. And, and as our buddy Lars would say, the guitar solo stock. It's just stock. <laughs> program to bring you a special report look at all the people here tonight oh man i got to make an announcement right here can you hear me out there It's time to take a quick break in the action from this week's episode. Sonny and I just wanted to thank all of you, the listeners, for joining us each and every week. Whether you just found us today or have been listening for multiple episodes, we love your passion for music and rock and roll in general. We consider you all part of our loud minority family. Always remember you can communicate with us a few different ways. If you don't mind Facebook, head over to the Growing Up Rock Loud Minority Facebook group and be part of the conversation. It's a private group and all you have to do is ask to join, answer a few rock and roll questions, and you're in. If you despise Facebook, which many people do, then send us an email 
to growinguprock at gmail.com. We get everything there. You can follow us on Twitter and Insta at growinguprock, which is one word, G-R-O-W-I-N-U-P-R-O-C-K. In the event you feel entertained by our podcast, we would appreciate it if you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode and go leave us a five-star review either at Apple Podcast or Podchaser. Now, back to our regularly scheduled program. Steven, this is what I was talking about. Here's where they are a garage band that is starting out, comes out. Because if there isn't much else in the catalog that Hetfield wrote by himself, that was probably a good idea because this song is not good. Yeah, I mean, it's raw for sure. And it has a lot of the punk vibe, but there's some good riffs in this song. I like a lot of the riffage that's happening on there. Uh, so I noted it's, it's riff-tastic. Uh, it's short and sweet. It's three minutes long. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think out of everything, probably this is this is more punk feel to me than Hit the Lights for sure, uh, just because it is short and sweet and to the point. So it's not my favorite Metallica song by any means, but uh, I don't hate it as much as you guys. Let, let me ask you guys this because we haven't talked about it yet. And I think it's one of the things we're probably all kind of in agreement on on music production value is a big deal to me. Now, I'm not saying everything has to sound like Def Leppard's Hysteria, nice and sweet, but at times, this album sounds like a demo. Do you guys agree with that? Well, I do agree, but I'll, I'll also harken back to the fact that the budget was tight, right? <laughs> the guy went bankrupt just trying to pay 15 grand to get this record made. So, yes, uh, it was partially the budget. It was partially the timing back in 1983. So today, I mean, if you still listen to it today, I listened to the original record that I have, not the remastered one. And it's, you know, it's of the time, I guess I would say. The guitar sounds a lot better than a lot of those guitars that were out at the time. I will say that. Yeah, for me, David, I, I give it a pass just because it's 83. But I will tell you, I purposely listened to the remastered version. So that way I could just not hear that tinny guitar. And sometimes it sounds like Lars is playing in the hallway on that initial, right? So I didn't want to get caught up in that. Yeah, and you pointed it out earlier, Sonny. So you hearken back to it earlier where they were trying to be not be just another L.A. band. A lot of people identify Metallica with the Bay Area, but Metallica started in Los Angeles on the Sunset Strip with a lot of other bands and they hated it. From what I understand, they were treated like shit. They were just, you know, because the LA scene was hair bands starting to emerge at that point in time. So they were very much not that. And that's part of what drove them away from LA and up to the Bay Area that and they were going after Cliff Burton as well. But you know, that, that definitely separated them and I think allowed them to focus on the band that they would become without being influenced by anything that was happening around them, like in Los Angeles. Yeah. All right. So we get to the next track, Jump in the Fire. Okay. So for folks that have been listening to this podcast for a while, have been following me for a while, it's like, okay, he hasn't completely shit on this record yet or completely shit on Metallica yet. 
there's a reason because Metallica is right at the cusp for me. This is the most thrash that I get. This is where my speed ends. I absolutely, there's one Megadeth song I like, period. I I hate all other Megadeth, right? So this is it for me. I don't listen to Anthrax. I don't listen to Slayer. I don't really listen to any of that other stuff. And the reason is, is an example of this song. It's an evil sounding riff. You get a little bit of a groove and that every once in a while, Metallica will have that. And it pulls me in and reminds me they are right on the edge for me. Now, if I don't grow up in the Bay Area, I probably don't listen to Metallica and don't even give them a chance. I kind of got forced into giving them a chance. But this is what attracts me, and I think this song is okay. David, what do you think? All right. So I have here that it's the one of the first songs that they wrote as a band, and Mustaine gets a writing credit on it. And one of the things that's interesting is Mustaine wrote it at 16, and it's about sex. We have another song that he tried to put on the album about sex. I can't think of any Megadeth song that's about sex. Clearly, he he changed his thinking and, and what he wanted to do a little bit later in life. But I'm like you. The riff is really cool on this. The band reworked the lyrics to discuss kind of the fallen nature of humans. People will keep sinning and, and perpetrating evil, damning themselves to hell. And it, it's just go ahead and jump on in. I, I love the solo in this one. It's a little slowed down and has a little more feel to it. Uh, it's not quite, quite breakneck speed like a lot of the other stuff. And I think it shows some characteristics that will become a part of Kirk Hammett's playing and sets him apart in the future. And I also have here that per large, they wrote this song to sound like Run to the Hills. Oh, that might be why it connects with me a little bit. Um, Steven, Lars actually said, here's another song about sex, but that's who Dave Mustaine was. He was cool and confident and had a cool haircut. When we went and hung out with him at his apartment, there were girls there. He was much more of a man of the world where James and I were these weird little awkward disenfranchised teenagers. I think... Mustang might be a year or two older, too, possibly. I'm not sure, though. So, Stephen, your thoughts on this song? Yeah, I mean, they were kind of dirty greasers back back then. They weren't exactly glammed out uh, L.A. strip material, right? None of them. So (laughs) having girls around was probably a uh, highlight, being able to do that at this juncture of their uh, garage band career. So, yeah, as David pointed out, this was one of the earlier Metallica songs written. You heard me talk about Hit the Lights being one of two originals played at the very first Metallica show ever. This was the second one. I've always loved this song. This is probably up there for me in terms of uh, favorite Metallica songs. This is one of the classics for me. And uh, I love the course and I love the riff. All right. So then we get to the instrumental Anesthesia. Pulling teeth. 
The story goes, supposedly it took Cliff about 15, 20 minutes to get the sound right. He took one hit off a joint, bent over, drank a beer, and recorded this in one take. So what? Okay, I get it. Cliff's dead. Nobody wants him dead. Nobody wanted him dead. This shit should have been on the cutting room floor. I don't understand why this is necessary. It doesn't even sound like a bass most of the time. David, this is just shit. I disagree with you on that. Now, I'm going to tell you, I hate bass solos in concert. Like, for instance, when Michael Anthony drinks the sweet tea out of the Jack Daniels uh, you know, bottle on stage, uh, it's just a complete teetotal waste of time, and that's no insult to bass players. I don't like drum solos either. All right. When I listen to this, I have to go back to 1983 and put myself in your guys' shoes. Y'all a little bit older than me. This has to be the first time that people heard a bass being played like this as a lead instrument. Not only that, but with distortion on it. The playing is groundbreaking. Now, I know somebody's probably going to email you and say there was some obscure guy in Sweden that had started doing this, you know, 10 years before. But as far as like, you know, Joe Q out there, it's the first time they've heard that. I do think the opening goes on. It's noodling a little bit and it goes on a minute or so too long. But uh, and I start to get bored with that. But he's using these pedal effects. It just sounds unique. But Lars provides possibly the most bland drum beat of his career on it. It's very groundbreaking. I appreciate everything about it, but I only need to hear it, hear it once. And uh, Stephen, here's what Lars said when he was asked about Cliff's contributions musically to the band. Lars said, Cliff understood words like harmonies and arpeggios. We couldn't even spell them. <laughs> so I guess that gets him a bass solo. I don't understand, Stephen. I, I guess I just don't get it. All right. How dare you, Sonny Pooney, besmirge. Hold on. I'm going to use a big word. How, how, how dare you besmirge the memories of Clifford Burton. The man is not here to defend himself. Whatever. I, I did it to Eric Carr, too. When everybody loves that Little Caesar bullshit, I'm like, it sounds like shit. If the guy wasn't dead, you guys would hate this fucking song. All right. So here's where I'm going to share. I think, David, you're right. Think about the timing. It's 1983. You haven't heard anything on record like this, and especially not a bass solo right you hear guitar solos all the time it is the age of the guitar hero in 1983 so in that way it is completely unique now that we've gotten all that out of the way okay eh, it's completely too long it's meh for me i listened to it today i never remember loving it to begin with i mean it's four minutes and 15 seconds and that's a full-on song and it's just too long. And so maybe I would have liked it a little bit better if it was shorter. Uh, it's nothing against Cliff or his uh, 
you know, his skill set or anything like that. For me personally, and again, I cannot stress this enough. Send your hate mail to Sonny Pooney at Hollywood.com. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's just, uh, it's very meth for me. Uh, I don't love it. All right. So then we go to the last song on the first side, Whiplash. And David, you had mentioned it. You know, there's, uh, I'm 14 year old where I'm hearing this, you know, Stephen's 17 or 26 or something. Um, and, <laughs> you know, there's kids in their basements in their teenage years. And this song to these 12 to 17 year old kids, is the Beatles on Ed Sullivan because they're listening to it in their basement and this breakneck speed fucking fast as hell thrash is basically being born right before your eyes. And some kid who hasn't washed their hair in four and a half years is like, I think I can do that too. And then here comes anthrax and all those other shitty bands that came afterwards. So I get it. Uh, the song's okay for me. I mean, it's just too fucking fast for me, but just knowing that, you know, it basically gave birth to thrash. I just want to wish this song was never in existence to be honest. All right, so it was the lead single. So if you hadn't bought the album and you're, I can't imagine what radio station this was being played <laughs> on, but uh, if you so somehow happen to find some underground radio station come out of some guy's van in, uh, you know, Oakland uh, at the time, <laughs> you may have been able to hear it. All right, song starts with a few chords and you get some heavy tom drumming by Lars and the riff is lightning quick. Can't stand singing about how hard you're going to rock. Can we rock? What we're going to do to you when we're rocking and what's going to happen at the concert. And that's what this is. But also, these guys haven't lived life at this point. This is kind of what they know. So, you know, give them a little bit of a, of a, of a break on that. But it's describing the feeling of a thrash concert, and it contains the word thrash. I have here, is this the origin of the term? Also, they name drop themselves. Never good. Never good to name drop yourself uh, at any point. I know it's a favorite of the diehards. I think if you change the lyrics up on it, you've got something. But I'm skipping it. And Steven, I, I never listen to it because it's just too fast. But for all those trivia nerds out there, Motorhead won their only Grammy Award ever on their cover of this song. They won it for Best Metal Performance in 2004. It's got to be pretty weird to win a Grammy of a cover of a band that was influenced by you. That's kind of interesting. I don't know. And Lars wants to blame the song on Venom. Venom is not this bad to be. But uh, Steven, your thoughts. Hells no. <laughs> Look, I'm going to keep it short and sweet here. I love it. Oh, good Lord. All I got to say is acting like a maniac. Whatever. Whiplash. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> ah, yeah. This guy, the first time I saw him at Mabuhay's after we played at the stone, he had a fucking whiplash. He had to go to the fucking, he had to go to the hospital because of his neck. And I fucking, I mean, this time he gets Stay a black eye. Yeah. <laughs> really? He smashes his head in our eyes. Fucking okay. Fucking shit. Fucking ain't right. Don't say fuck, all right? Okay, I won't say it. Yeah. This guy fucking, this guy gets, <laughs> this guy fucks. Okay. This guy gets a black eye, smashes <laughs> his head in the back of somebody else, you know, and comes black up with a shiner, he's just going, Okay. Yeah, man, I'm a metallic dope. <laughs> <laughs>
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, so then we get to the first song on side two, Phantom Lord. Uh, Lars said about this, obviously the whole thing we were doing, we were using English sound, English way of doing things, which was two guitars. Everything in America was primarily one guitar, so we started listening to Diamond Heads, Lightning to the Nations, and Motorhead's Overkill, and Ace of Spades, and uh, Iron Maiden's first record, and British Steel, and that was kind of the blueprints of what created what Metallica was doing on this song. It kind of works, David. It doesn't super work. It's not my favorite song on the album, but it, I understand what they're trying to do. Well, it's another Mustaine song. Uh, he gets a writing credit on it. And let's see what you think about this, Sonny. I think the lyrics of it are a lot like Avenged Sevenfold's Hail to the King. It's an entity going through and just slaying everything in its path. You have absolutely no control over it. It's not. It's going to leave everything dead in its wake. Kind of like you know on, on Hell to the King, which I think is a. I love that song. I do too. But I'm I'm kind of like you. I I don't really have any strong feelings either way on it. You know, you get a little bit of a slower sludgy riff at the beginning, and it and it obviously gets much faster and some blistering drumming by by Lars. But other than that, I mean, I'm not going to turn the the station if it comes on, but I'm not going to seek it out. And Steven, I, I'm listening to it today and I'm like, okay, I got it. Three years later, the song was a lot better when they redid it as Master of Puppets, right? So this is like the precursor of the song Master of Puppets, only shittier. And basically somebody told James, sing as fast as you possibly can because we don't plan on cutting any of the lyrics out. Yeah, I mean, this song's all right for me. It's not, I don't have a ton of stuff to say about this song. I mean, I like the riff in it. It's still a little raw, but yeah, I mean, I can kind of see what, what they're saying about some of the building blocks of it, but I think that's going to be more apparent on the next song, in my opinion. It's just okay for me. I mean, I don't dislike it. It's just not one that I go to often.
Then we get to the second song on the second side, No Remorse. And David, can you imagine? 1983. So this thing came out in July. So let's let's fast forward to like October. And Metallica's playing some club in San Francisco. There's a mosh pit. And in the middle of No Remorse, James yells attack. Holy shit, you'd have to get the hell out of that mosh pit. Otherwise, you would die. The energy on this song is ridiculous. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I agree with you. And it's basically the precursor to uh, Disposable Heroes lyrically. This is the most mature lyrics other than the Four Horsemen on the album that we have. And, you know, they do start getting obsessed later on in their career with war and, and, and nuclear war and things like that. I have here that it starts off with with a riff and then you get the standard kind of um, Hammett soloing in the, in the beginning. But to me, he's starting to discover maybe the wah pedal a little bit on this or at least an effect that, that sounds like that. And I like how the riff goes for a few bars and then you get a solo, then you go back to the riff. But I'll tell you, it's a minute 12 before we get to the vocals, uh, which is a little long in the tooth for back in this day with this kind of music. But I do think the course is a little bit cheesy. It's a little too straightforward for me but uh there's some blistering picking by Hammett at the end and i think though this is one of the songs that if you listen to it you can tell mustaine mustaine had a hand in writing it and so uh kudos to him but change the course up a little bit and i like this song more i don't hate it uh it's kind of like phantom lord but i agree with you if you're seeing this live which i've never seen them play i don't i think the only songs i've heard them play off this are uh seek and destroy and um hit the lights but i can imagine back then mosh pitting has kind of become a thing and then that happens in some club it's 130 degrees in there and you know i can just imagine the place going nuts Stephen from Metallica, I guess you would 
labeled this song as mid-tempo at the beginning. <laughs> For Metallica, I guess it is. What kept me interested, though, Stephen, I will be honest with this, is that weird musical change they do in the chorus when they say war without end, and then it changes again. Like, those little things adds like this. It's a little bit of a hook. There's not a lot of backing vocals. There's no yelling happening. There's no harmonizing happening. So you kind of got to do something. And between the tempo changing and these little weird things, it just keeps me interested enough. I think no matter what we say about this particular song, no remorse, no repent. We don't care what it meant. They don't give a shit what we have to say about it. So I, this is one of the songs I absolutely love. This one is like priest to me. Uh, it reminds me very much of grinder or metal gods, that riff. Here's my only criticism of this song. It's a six minute and 27 second song. I think it, it's a bit long before it gets to the singing. So, I mean, if I was producing it, I would have cut some of that out and gotten that song down, you know, to the five minute mark or something. Uh, and I think it would have been a little bit more effective, but I dig it. Then we get to the second to last song on the album, Seek and Destroy. And David, to me, this like siren type riff and the gallop, one of my favorite Metallica songs. Dude, this, it actually has a pre-chorus and chorus that it's memorable. You can sing along with it. And this is what Metallica becomes. If Metallica becomes Phantom Lord only, I probably never give them another listen again, but because of Seek and Destroy, this is like, wow, this song is, it's amazing that the same band wrote this song that wrote Motor Breath. Like it's, you could tell there was hints, right? Oh, for sure. And and one of the things I think is interesting about this, this is a heavy metal song. This isn't a thrash song. Yeah. There's, there's melody to it. And I've kind of always been surprised that the diehards like it so much because so many of them are just like, it's got to be 150 beats a minute, you know, and no melody and and no sense of a course or anything like that, especially a call and response course like this is like, if you see them in concert, I'm like you, Sonny, this is a hint at what's coming with the black album. If you ask me, it's kind of showing that they have that in them. It's one of their most played songs. Uh, It's one of the few that I'm like, I, I don't care how many times I see them. This needs to be played. It's straightforward. Like I said, it's it's not thrash. And uh, the lyrics on it, somebody looking for a fight. We don't know if they want to fire. They actually want to kill somebody. I, I don't know. But I love the call and the response. And uh, it, it, there's just not too much bad you can say about this. This is quintessential. This is a top five quintessential Metallica song, in my opinion. If, if an alien came down and said, who is Metallica? This is one of the five songs that go
Yeah, Stephen, and I don't know if to give the credit to James or give the credit to Lars because they wrote it together. But that, huh, na-na-na-na, na-na-na-na, right? Like in the pre-chorus, dude, whoever came up with that melody nailed it because it absolutely fit what James could do. It fit the song. It fit the feel, and it made them who they are. I'm with David. If somebody says, I've never heard Metallica, give me two songs to listen to. Normally I give them Seek and Destroy, Master of Puppets. You don't like these two songs? You ain't going to like Metallica. Yeah, so an interesting stat for this song in reference to this album. This song is double and triple the amount of streams of any other song on this record. So in terms of popularity for this album, this is obviously the most popular Metallica song on this particular record. Lars said that this song was influenced by the Diamond Head song Dead Reckoning. I don't know about all that. I'm not that familiar with that uh, Diamond Head song, but I absolutely love this song. This song is riftastic. That's my my comment. All right. Just so good. The melody and James's delivery and everything about this song is killer. And it's a seven-minute song. Uh, it's not even a really short song. But, but it doesn't have, feel that way. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't feel that way at all. I just absolutely love Seek and Destroy, definitely. The opening riff on it, you know, I think next to Inner Sandman or, or maybe Master of Puppets, that's their most recognizable riff. They always play this very late in the set. You, a lot of times it's the closer or it's the last song before the encore. And as soon as those first few notes hit, man, the place goes nuts. Yeah. You just want to break some shit when you hear this song. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> and this is where, I mean, I brought it up before. Metallica has this art that makes you feel a certain way. They got to be very careful on stage, right? James says, go kill. People will go fucking murder people. Like it's because you just, it's hard to not get into it when you're there because there's so much energy in the room. It'll whip a stadium into a frenzy. Yeah. You know, I, I saw them at Lollapalooza in 96 and it was Rage Against the Machine and Soundgarden and, and Metallica and Rage had everybody worked up and then came down a little bit with Soundgarden. And I specifically remember when Metallica played this song. I was like, man, it's about to get nuts in here again because uh, Rage, I was a little too close to the stage for that. Um, I had to fight my way out of this. This is 96. They're at the height of their powers. But I remember when they hit Seek and Destroy, the place went nuts. All right. Then we get to the last song on the album, Metal Militia. And uh, Dave is fast, furious as fuck finale. Like, I, I don't even know what other. It's just too fast. <laughs> I can't get into this song. Like, after Seek and Destroy, it's it's unfortunate that this closes out the record because I'm just not into this song. It's trash. <laughs> they, they shouldn't have put, they, they shouldn't have put it on the on the album. It's again, it's like metal's about to take over the world. Get you know, get in line with us or or get destroyed. You definitely can tell the riff was was written by Mustaine. I have here it's the it's the worst song uh, on the album. Hetfield's delivery is all over the place. The ending, though, I think is really good. It almost makes up for how terrible the, the lyrics are. And I've got Holy Cow Hammett's playing way over his head here. But nice tempo change in the middle. But uh, they, we do hear some soldiers marching and some shelling in the background, which we would hear later in a few other songs. But they should have stopped at Seek and Destroy. That would have been an epic way to close this album out. Instead, they send us out, you know, with just garbage. You take away, like, the album they did with Lou Reed and some of the stuff on Reload, this is as bad as Metallica can get. Cue up the hate mail. Yeah, there you go. 
Stephen, so Lars had said before they were trying to stay away from the sex and the, the obvious stuff. But then Lars said about Metal Militia that they wanted to move away from the heavy metal cliches too. No sword and sorcery imagery. You know, the leather and studs are fine, but we can't get too much dun- Dungeons and Dragons, basically. Let's go with fear and manipulation and get yourself heard and, you know, don't be the outcast and be quiet and blah, blah, blah. Let's go that route instead of, so they were purposely trying to stay away from Rainbow and Dio and all that kind of shit. They didn't want to end up there. And whether it's coincidence or whether they were smart enough to see it, they would have painted themselves into a corner. And instead they didn't. And I think that's a great idea. Yeah, I mean, they love all that stuff. They love all the uh, Rainbow and the Dio and the uh, Dungeons and the Dragons and all that stuff. But Metal Militia, uh, it makes me laugh that they were trying to get away from the heavy metal cliche and stuff like that. Because when this album came out, I want to say that Metal Militia was like, I think, the name of their fan club. Yeah. Maybe it still is. I don't know. I don't keep up with it. But uh, that was definitely like... Metal up your ass was their battle cry. Metal militia was their their people, their peeps, their community. So, you know, I mean, this is just, this is youth and angst in 1983, back to the 19, the 20 year old thing. That's, that's who they are. That's what it is. And so it's fitting for the record. That being said, I agree with you guys. It would have been cool if they would have just ended on seek and destroy because it still would have been, you know, a 45 minute record and that would have been good enough. Metal Militia is not my favorite song at all. Uh, I don't particularly love this tune. Uh, in fact, it had been so long since I listened to this particular song. I was like, wow, I don't remember not liking this song as much as I don't like this song when I'm listening to it. <laughs> so I was a little bit surprised because I won't say this record is a desert island record for me, but I like this record a lot. Uh, and it's it's a big part of my particular growing up rock building blocks. But yeah, this this song, I, I didn't love it. They, I mean, they don't like it either. They never play it. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to get your guys' final thoughts. want to get your top two, bottom two. So I'll start. Final thoughts on the record for me. Heavy as fuck of an album for me. Endless energy. It doesn't have the melody of the hard rock I was listening to at the time or the stuff I listen to today. 
no doubt it takes talent to play at the speed and the chops that they're playing with. I'm, I'm not arguing that. I'm very glad that later on James gets a little bit better with his vocal instead of just kind of screaming lyrics out all the time. Like he still kind of does that, but it got a little more melodic, I guess. And, you know, with the Black Album, et cetera, it got just more melodies too, which kind of hooked me in. And like I said, this is the line for me. Like the thrash line ends with Metallica. The speed metal line ends with Metallica. The black metal line ends with Metallica. Like this is the metal line for me, right? Uh, top two songs for me is easy. Seek and Destroy, Four Horsemen, awesome songs. Bottom two, I had a hard time getting to two because I really wanted three, but I settled with Motor Breath and Phantom Lord. David, how about you? Final thoughts and top two, bottom two. This is the Sergeant Peppers of thrash metal because so many people heard this and thought, we can do this. If you look at influential albums throughout American music history, this is probably a top 10 one because they were the first to get out to a brawl. I know people all Exodus and, and stuff like that, but they were the first one to get out to the general public. And so this is the beginning of thrash being accepted. It's going to be a couple more years, but this is planting the seed. Hit the lights, seek and destroy my top two, bottom two anesthesia and uh, metal militia. That wasn't hard. <laughs> Steven, how about you? Yeah, so it was fairly easy for me as well. Uh, top two songs, Jump in the Fire and Seek and Destroy. Bottom two songs was Pulling Teeth and Metal Militia. For me, if you'd have told me in 1983 when I listened to this record that 40 years later we'd be talking about this record and this band is arguably the biggest rock band on the face of the planet still today, I would have laughed in your face and told you, I'll put money on that. I'll ride that bet because there's no way in hell that I listened to this record with as much as I love it. And I loved it. Whatever the 16 year old me listens to this record. I hear that there is definitely a new breed of heavy metal with this record, but I can also see going back to this record, the flashes of what it would become and how they were so much different than a lot of the stuff that was out there at the time. But there's no way in hell I would have thought that they would have had the wide appeal that they've had, even with the Black Album and, and stuff like that. I, I mean, I get it. You can have a massive record in your career, but to be able to have that massive record and still all your old catalog and your new catalog still does well and i know that the band takes so much shit they get so much shit people ride this band crazy the band just puts out the 72 seasons and of all the bands that seriously could never record a new song and just sit back and ride their catalog and really honestly tour maybe once a, a year or once every few years the band works pretty hard they put out a brand new album. They tour excessively. They try to do new things in touring. I mean, I respect the way they're approaching this particular tour. I respect their in-the-round setup. I mean, they're a cool band. I still believe they're a cool band today. And I like a lot of the new album. Uh, so kudos to them. Overall, this is a groundbreaking debut record. Uh, that changed what would become, you know, a different side of rock and roll in 1983. Uh, and as you pointed out, Dave, you're, st you're still a few years away from it, but look what it's become. Well, to piggyback on what you were saying, 
they're very smart with marketing and they're very smart with making things events. When you go see them now, they've kind of turned this into the Jimmy Buffett of thrash. It's like an all day event. When I went to see him, Jim Brewer opened for like an hour and it wasn't a solid hour. He would come out, do a few minutes, then disappear. They'd play some music. He'd come back and play like trivia games with the crowd. He would disappear. Some more music would play. And then he finally came back on and, and introduced them. And one of the things I thought that was cool was they asked, who's the oldest person in the audience? There was a guy there that was 75 years old that was a fan when this came out and he took his grandchild to it. And so you're seeing, you were seeing like people at least in their 60s at this show with their children and their grandchildren. And it's just become an event. And you think about some of the lyrics and some of their stuff is, oh, that's not exactly what I would call family friendly. I want to take my eight-year-old grandchild to, but it's become such a cultural event. I remember I was telling a friend of mine, I said, oh, you should take your son. They were like eight or nine. They're like, oh, it's going to be too not family friendly. I said, Metallica concert is literally the least threatening concert you'll ever go see. Everybody there is a fan. Everybody enjoys it. There's people there, you know, that aren't far away from nursing homes that, that are going to it. But they're geniuses in how they market stuff. And they are not scared to put their stuff out there in situations to get made fun of. But they do it. And unlike Exodus and, and, and Slayer and Testament and, and, and Megadeth, they're selling out football stadiums. And to me, the only ones that can really do that right now are Foo Fighters and Metallica consistently. And Foo Guns Fighters and is only going to be in certain markets. Metallica, it's, well, yeah, uh, but Metallica, it's going to be any market. You know, and they're like they're playing in Dallas at Jerry World. It holds like ninety something thousand people, mm-hmm. and they're doing two nights like they are at all of them, and it's going to sell out. So they definitely had a vision, and they went there. I don't believe anybody that says they never wanted to make the Black Album when they first started off. I think they they had a plan, and they went there, and they got it, and they're they're geniuses for it. Maybe so. I think that they've done a good job of always aligning themselves with geniuses. I think that they have. They have and have always had great people on their team. So I'll say that, right? Their management company. But you have to be willing to listen to those people. True. That know? is true. And surely they've, they've come a long ways and they've been through a lot of shit and, uh, you know, all that. But look, <laughs> they can't, you can't argue the success that this band has. And a lot of people, I think, hate them simply because they're not those people's little secret anymore, right? This is a band that should have stayed people's secrets for basically ever. And it didn't, it didn't stay people's secrets at all. And people hate that when that happens, but too bad. (laughs) People had that problem with GNR. They had that problem with Soundgarden. They have that problem with Maiden. They had that problem with a lot of people, but there's not very many bands out there that got a diamond record and that diamond record, that took them out of the underground. They ain't never going back to the underground again. That's for damn sure. It's still the best-selling album of the SoundScan era. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. All right, so let's connect it to Kiss real quick. You wanted the best, but you got the best. The hottest band in the world, Kiss! It's time for your historic moment on Growing Up Rock. So the, for the historic moment, since we're talking about all things that happened in 1983, we're going to go with a band that actually opened for Kiss in 1983 during Creatures of the Night Tour, and that band is Molly Hatchet. So if you don't know anything about Molly Hatchet, American band, Jacksonville, Florida, 
mostly popular late 70s, early 80s, considered Southern rock by some, I guess. They're a little bit Dungeons & Dragons sometimes, especially when you see their album covers. They have 14 studio albums. The first three all went platinum, but that was all between 78 and 80. The band opened for Kiss one time in 1983. That was on March 1st in Kansas City. You fast forward six years later to 1989, and on their seventh studio album, they actually did a Kiss cover. So here is Danny Joe Brown on vocals, Bobby Ingram and Dwayne Rowland on guitar, John Galvin on keyboards, Riff West on bass, and Bruce Crump on drums. This band has had like 85 members, by the way. With their version that was actually released two months before the Kiss version was released, here is Hide Your Heart. Okay, so Molly Hatchet, definitely a Southern rock band. When I heard this version, I was kind of like, seriously, that's Molly Hatchet? Because what did they do? They got, uh, Molly Hatchet got neutered doing this song. Like, I, I, I would have really probably enjoyed Molly Hatchet's version of this song if they'd have just done it Molly Hatchet way. Like, you know, twin lead uh, solos and Southern flair and just been Molly Hatchet with distortion and all, I'd have probably enjoyed it because, I mean, listen to classic songs like Flirting with Disaster. Molly Hatchet put out some pretty great uh, Southern rock songs and and the twin lead uh, solos by their guitar players are, you know, I mean, they were fantastic back in the day. But this is, I don't know what the producer was thinking when they put this song together because I, I do not like this version at all. And David, what's interesting is the little bit of rock that the song had in it, Molly Hatchet took out. Well, I'll say this, and I'll have to show myself out after this. I don't like Kiss, and I don't like Molly Hatchet. So to quote Liam Gallagher, I don't have to listen to it to know I don't like it. Are you a pothead, Farker? No, no. What? No, 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 Jack. No, I'm, I'm not. I, I pass on grass all the time. I mean, not all the time. Yes or no, grass? No. Yes, no. But I listened to it. And I will tell you this, <laughs> Hide Your Heart, I actually think is a good song. It, it's, I think it tells a story. It's, it's no offense to people that like Kiss, but it's not sex, drugs, and, and, and rock and roll. It, it's more of a story. I, I actually like that song, and I like some of the songs actually on that album. I feel like Molly Hatchet was just driving to the studio and go, yeah, we're going to do this song. And they show up, 
they're not concerned with the tone on the guitars. They're not concerned with the levels. They're like, yeah, we're going to probably get, you know, it's Southern rock. We're probably going to get out of here and hit the Waffle House real quick. And they just do this song. There's no character. There's no character to it. There's no heart. There's no soul. How somebody's like, yeah, this sounds good. Let's throw it on an album because it is as plain Jane as they come. Hey, Sonny, help me with the history of this song. So obviously I know that this is a Desmond child pen song and Desmond's credited. He and Rouge are the only writers of this song. Paul didn't have anything to do with this. Oh no, this is child, Paul Stanley, Holly Knight. This is the trifecta. This is why it ended up on so many people's doorstep to go do Bonnie Tyler did this song. Hatchet did it. Like it kept going to from person to person to person and all in the same time frame, which is really weird. So listening to this song, I would seriously like be surprised if they told me that they didn't try to deliver this to John Bon Jovi first and foremost. This has Bon Jovi written all over it with the characters in the in the lyrics and the I mean, this is a Bon Jovi song. So especially early Bon Jovi. Yeah. I mean, was this to try to de, uh, deliver to Bon Jovi first and they passed on it? Not that I know of, but that you're getting the Desmond Child writing right in that. But Here's what I think. I have not seen this in any book, and you know Paul's going to have his own story. But I, here's what I think that happened. Song got written. They were they were writing a bunch of stuff for Hot in the Shade. That's why we got so many songs for Hot in the Shade. And I think personally, Paul was not going to make this a Kiss song. I think he was trying to shop it, and especially since he had Holly and Desmond helping, they started shopping it. But then, if you remember, Paul went on a solo tour in '89. And he did this song on his solo tour, and people were going apeshit over this new song. And I think that's how it ends up on Hot in the Shade with Kiss doing it. But I don't think he had any intentions of putting this on the record. But that's a guess on my part. Because why would you hand it to everybody else and their mother and then do your own version? Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Just having a character named Tito... Yeah, it's just like (laughs) that screams the Jersey Shore and Bon Jovi. All right, so closing out just the Metallica portion of this guys, just like Steven said, 40 years later, they're selling out stadiums. They've had six members, six. And you know what? You might have to believe that if Cliff doesn't die, they might've still had the original four, right? Uh, Six members. And basically they changed the bass player out twice. And I don't quite understand what it is in the formula, but then I like Metallica and I listen to Metallica. So there's, there's something, they did something to grab everybody. And you can't just say it's the Black Album because that's not my favorite Metallica album, right? So they did something to get people. And man, I have heard Enter Sandman just as much as I have heard fucking Paradise City and all that other shit from Guns N' Roses. I've heard it just as much as Welcome to the Jungle. Anywhere you go, that song gets played. Every sporting arena. So you're right, Stephen. These guys don't have to do anything else if they don't want to, but they keep doing it. And it's crazy to me. Yeah, I mean, for sure. This band is this band's probably one of the best-selling American rock bands in history, I would bet. Uh, just definitely one of the heaviest best-selling bands on up there. But yeah, so I'm glad that we revisited the record. As I've said before, this record was a big part of my grown-up rock years and definitely one of the building blocks in my particular youth and history. David Hudson. 
Thanks for joining us on this podcast and this recap of Metallica's Kill 'Em All, celebrating 40 years this year. Tell us a little bit about what you got going on, the State of America podcast. Do you even do the other podcast anymore still? Yes. It's every now and then. Yeah, we're, we're in the middle. I don't know when this is going to come out, but we're doing a, a four-part, I guess you call a little mini-series on Bruce Springsteen. Chris took me to see Springsteen in Kansas City back in February, yeah. and I didn't care for him until I saw it, and then the show just blew me away. So we're, we're doing that. Hopefully, Sonny's going to come on for episode number four. State of America, we're just rolling along. Um, by the time this comes out, we're going to have Eric Bobo from Cypress Hill is going to have been on. He uh, He recorded a bunch of stuff with the Crows in the 90s. Uh, a lot of people don't know that, but uh, we're just having fun. Uh, had Johnny Colt from the Crows come to my house and we threw a big party and uh, he and I have become legit friends. Uh, we don't even talk about the band when we talk, but uh, that's kind of one of the wildest things that's ever happened to me. But it'd be like uh, Gene Simmons coming to see you guys or something like that. But no, we've got a very successful Patreon if, if people like the Black Crows and want to join that. But uh, same thing. Try, as you guys try to tie everything to Kiss, we can find a way to tie most things to the Black Crows. So. There you go. Thanks for having me on, though. Always a good time. Sonny was the first nine Chris Craig person to be on Digital Kill the Radio Star years and years ago. And Stephen, I met you at the first Rock and Pod, and I, I, you walked up to me, and I guess you heard me talk, and you're like, "Are you David Hudson?" And that was the first time anybody had ever I'd met anybody that's listened to our podcast. So, uh, you guys both always have a little special place in my heart. And Stephen, I did come up with something for you to come on State of America about. So, uh, anyway, thank you. I love you guys. I love your podcast. I look forward to it every Sunday morning when I when I wake up. So, feel free to have me on anytime you want. You got it, Huddy. Uh, that's it. Anything else there, Mister Pooney? Before we get up on out of here. Thanks for listening. And uh, the next album ain't Metallica. I can tell you that. Yes, as we've done throughout this entire series this year, we go from 150 miles an hour to uh, three or four miles an hour sometimes. And so uh, June is in the books and next month is a different album for July. So that's it. Until next week. See ya. Later. Get ready to shuffle, rattle and roll. Play us out, boys. Everyone's got a rock and roll story to tell, and we want to hear yours. So go to our website at growinguprock.com. That's one word, G-R-O-W-I-N-U-P-R-O-C-K.com. Or visit us on our Facebook page at Growing Up Rock and tell us all about it. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.